Good morning, church. What a blessing to be here today. Amen. Man, it is so exciting to be included in Christ today. I want to welcome in the Fellowship Center. A special shout out to all you guys on live stream. Uh, you're a great blessing to us, and uh, I just love what we're doing at WFR. I was able to be on a podcast uh, this past week that was a guy that Jeremy and Mike had met when they meet, went to meet with some of our folks that watch our live stream to just provide some discipleship and some of the gospel. So God is doing great things through our church. And instead of 2020 being a year that we all look back and regret, I think we're going to look back and say God did some amazing things through us because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We praise him for that. Happy Thanksgiving uh, to all of you in Thanksgiving week. Uh, we're not going to quit being thankful just because of a coronavirus, right? We're still going to give God some praise and some glory uh, through all things. Lisa and I thought uh, last week, I appreciate Mike stepping in for me, Thought we might have had the COVID, but it turned out to just be a bad sinus infection. You know, I'm basically being held together by antihistamine, cough drops, and bailing wire. That's, that's how I'm functioning. But today, praise the Lord, because I had enough wind, I was able actually to sing for the first time in a while. What great worship this morning. So uh, as Mike has already mentioned, but I want to mention it again, it's very important that we engage in 40 days of prayer. The idea is that's going to take us through the end of this year, and it has been a challenging year. But at the same time, we want to pray to be ready for every opportunity God is going to give us in 2021. So we're asking you to pray every day. We've got some guidelines for you on the app and some things here you can pick up. We want to be very vigilant for the next 40 days to ask the Almighty to get us ready for 2021. All right, so uh, if uh, Emery will come up here, uh, I'll give you a little bit of her background. She's quite impressive. She, uh, she was on the homecoming court, second team all district in basketball. She can run a mini excavator and a backhoe. Is that true? She's like a redneck princess. You know what I'm saying? I mean, beautiful, athletic, and can run heavy equipment. I got to tell you, Michael, Mindy, you need to put a moat around your house and fill it with alligators because, and you can let her build a moat. That's the beauty of it, right? Because they're going to be after this one. See what I did there with the humor? I went back to the first one. Yeah, that's. But my favorite thing here is it says your favorite place on the earth is where? Camp Shioka. All right. And that's one of my favorites, too. Now, that's good for applause. Um, Luke 22, 52 through 53 says, Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Also, uh, to Mr. Ron watching the live stream, go Tigers. (laughs) I love it. She said, can I say something else? I said, as long as it doesn't include anything about Alabama, you can say whatever you want. And you did great. And we do love you, Ron, and go Tigers. Um, so this, uh, this text that Emory read, we're in John 18. This is where we're going to be if you have your Bibles or following along or whatever you um, follow along with. We're going to be in John 18, verse 28 through 19 today. And my lesson is called The Doorway to Darkness. And it was I had a difficult week figuring out how to put all this together. So I've been praying a lot about it and hope the Holy Spirit 
will do what he has, uh, has appointed me to do today. But at the end of the text that Emory just read in Luke 22, which is, of course, another description of what we're doing in John 18, that, te- that last phrase is super chilling to me. You know, the scene is they come down, they've got their lanterns and they've got their weapons, you know, and everybody's, ah, we're going to go get him. And there's a huge crowd of people, and, and Mike described it last week. And it's the same people that have been following him around and listening to him for the last three years, a lot of them. And so they're acting like they're going to get Frankenstein, you know, oh, the city is coming out to get him. And Jesus looks at that in this Luke 22 context, and he says, I've been with you every day. I mean, now we've got the torches and the weapons, and what's, what's changed? And then that last phrase, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. What's about to happen, what I'm going to get into today, and then next week Tommy is going to take more, is a picture of darkness that's chilling, that's terrifying, but that's necessary for the world and even us today to understand how great the love of God really is for what our Lord and Savior went through for us. You see, we're standing now in this moment after Jesus has been arrested at the precipice of darkness. I mean, there's a doorway there and it's pitch black and Jesus is about to go into it. And so for the next three days and what we're going to be studying here in our text... We've got Satan and his evil minions thinking that they're extinguishing one-third of the Godhead. That's what they thought. I mean, we know from what Paul told us, Satan didn't know what the plan was. But he also knew that Jesus had never sinned, and all of his power had been concentrated on sin and death. And now he had an opportunity to have unfettered power over people, because the deal was for him, you sin, you die. And we were fearful of that. But here Jesus comes along. He knows there's something special about him. He doesn't sin. And so what he's going to do is to try to make sure he dies anyway. He's part of the planet. We're about to enter three days where the Jewish religious hierarchy thought that they were snuffing out their biggest threat to their power base. You see, they had a completely misinformed wrong view of the role of the messiah god had told them all throughout jewish history what was going to happen and why but in their minds they still saw the messiahs coming down doing a political overthrow they would take care of all that and then they would be in power forever the problem was they didn't have hearts to love god they've been a nemesis from day one they wanted power over people we're about to enter three days where a roman governor is trying to soothe his conscience over executing an innocent man. You see, in our story today, there's one guy who knows all the way through, other than Jesus, that Jesus is innocent. And that was Pontius Pilate. He tried every trick in the book to make sure that Jesus wasn't executed. The problem is, he didn't understand that Jesus came here to die. And so his plans would not work. So there are three powers at work that I want to talk about today in our lesson, our context. The first one, as I mentioned, are the religious forces of the day. Now, they've arrested Jesus. They've accused Jesus. 
And they began by abusing Jesus as well. I want to read you a text that was in Mike's text last week, but I think it's very important to look at the mindset going in. It's from John 18, verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. They're trying to dig something up. Dig, dig. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. I mean, it's not like it's an overthrow here. He's been very upfront and honest about what he believes, what he teaches. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. You want testimony against me? Talk to the folks. Verse 22, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. This offends me at so many levels. I get, I get so charged up every time I read that text. Because at the heart of it is what you see today. If you can't win an argument of ideas and words and thoughts and persuade people, where do you turn to? You start slapping people in the face. Is that not what we're seeing on the streets of our cities? You can't win the hearts and minds of people to an ideology that most people know won't work. Marxism won't work. That's been proven over and over and over again. And yet these people are committed to it. And what happens when you disagree? You get slapped in the face and a lot of other stuff. That's a mindset. But what offends me the most about this context is it's right here in front of the former high priest and all these other priests whose whole job it has been for thousands of years is to bring sacrifices from the people and lay them out before Almighty God, who Jesus is. Imagine the demeaning of that. All these years you've rolled out the sacrifices to Christ, and now you've got the Son of God standing right in front of you. What do you do? You slap him in the mouth. That's the mindset. Jesus says calmly, as only he could. If I said something wrong, testify as to what is wrong. So he takes them right back, right? Truth. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Hmm. Then they sent him away. You see, they're looking for a legal reason to shut him up. They come up with he's a blasphemer because he says he's the son of God. Only problem is he is the son of God. So it's a baseless charge. They have to find a way, a psychological way, to demoralize Jesus to the point and humiliate him that nobody would ever want to follow him. And this is part of their plan as they move him down the line. They want to make sure that this person is not recognizable as a leader and certainly not as the Son of God when we get through with you. They were doing this in the name of religion. As the people of God. What hypocrites. You see, they had to have a moral reason to combat truth. And I see this every day in the current landscape. Immorality without truth. They keep saying we have to have the high moral ground. But you can't do it. So why are they so motivated to silence Jesus? What is their problem? Why can't they just give it a chance as maybe true? I mean, Nicodemus did, right? He saw through it. Well, he doesn't fit their narrative of the Messiah. I already mentioned that. Also, he didn't come to them first. 
Think about how Jesus did it. He comes down here to the earth, the Messiah. And who does he go to? A bunch of tax collectors and sinners and fishermen and zealots. He goes to the people. And he starts talking to them about the kingdom of God. But you know who he didn't go to? Them. And they got their little power control. We control who's in the synagogue. We control who goes to the temple. We're in control. They say, oh, the son of God. You see, they didn't believe the truth that Jesus is the son of God. And he came here to save the world. They only viewed it through their power, their religious power over the people. It's very unfortunate, brethren, but you know it's true. That mindset has been around for 2,000 years and still going strong. How do you describe religious groups that have all these terrible covered up sins and hide their leadership and just terrible, awful things? People who are leading universities but secretly living terrible, sinful, destructive lives. So, you know what they did? They formed a mob. Because that's what you do when you want to cause chaos. You form a mob. That's what they did. They got some people together and they said, we're going to plant you right here. And no matter what happens, the message is he needs to die. The worst possible death. Crucified. Crucified. That's your mantra. No matter what they say. Well, here's the problem. When you form a mob, now we've got a political problem. And that's number two. We've got religious forces, but we've also got political forces at work as well. And when I was reading this text and I was studying it, that's what I kept coming back to, the politics of this situation. I mean, look, I know it could be what we're dealing with in the country right now that has politics at the forefront of my brain, but you talk about some politics that are going on here. Enter two people, Pontius Pilate, who I already mentioned, and also Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee. He was the, he was the Jewish leader. He was the son of Herod the Great. Do you remember Herod the Great? We read about him at the first of the Gospels. He was the one that when he found out that the Messiah was coming by prophecy, he decided that was a threat to his power. So he hatched a plan. And this is a brilliant plan for your people, by the way, that he's going to kill every toddler in Israel and in Galilee. So he can make sure that Jesus doesn't survive because he believes the prophecy. Can you believe a government? would come up with a plan that made it okay to kill babies? Hmm. And yet they did. And people bought in. Ruthless. Now, Herod Jr. here is what I call him. He's not as much of a threat, but he is dangerous. He's more of a womanizer and a partier. That's what he was all about. But we know from John the Baptist that if he decides to get it in for you, he's got the authority to kill you. Remember what happened to John? You know what John was doing? Calling out sexual immorality in the palace. Cost him his head. Martyr. Pontius Pilate is the Roman governor overlord. So basically Rome is occupying Israel and he's the main guy. Now, by the way, he's the one with the real power here because he's got the Roman army to come in if he needs them. But you know what an overlord, you know what their job is? Just keep it. Just keep it under control. We don't want any uprisings. We don't want any riots. Let's just keep everything under control. He was the ultimate politician. And I was fascinated by the back and forth that he and Jesus have. 
You see, politicians, that's what they do. They're kissing babies while they're stealing their lollipops. That's what they do. And that's who he was. They don't want to pick a side. And they sure don't want to get boxed in by the truth. The truth? In essence, they want to be liked and do as little as possible. Which in our current government situation, I'm all about that. Do as little as possible. Let us live and be free. They want popularity without extreme position. They want pragmatism without offending anyone. And they want power without truth. Because, see, if they can paint a narrative and you can believe it, then they have power over your life. Is that not what we're seeing today? Come on, man. Dictating who gets to spoon out the mashed potatoes at Thanksgiving? That's what some people are into. Are you kidding me? You talk about power without truth or science, by the way. So Pilate's got a predicament. He's a Jewish he's he's there, and the Jewish religious leaders are asking him to execute Jesus for blasphemy. That's what they come to him. He's got to die, but we can't kill him. We don't have the authority, but you do. Well, that's now that's a tough choice for Pilate, right? What's he going to do? He doesn't want to get involved in a religious dispute. Think about the slippery slope from Pilate's perspective. If I start stepping in every time you people want to kill somebody, I'm going to be killing people all over the place. I don't want that. So that political mind begins to work. How do we do that? How do we pull this off? We've got to get a backroom deal going. So he decides that he's going to interview Jesus. Because that's what politicians do, right? We've got to have some hearings. We've got to get to the bottom of this. We've got to form some commissions and get to the bottom of it. Well, that works well in our society, doesn't it? He's going to interview Jesus. Look at verse 33. Pilate goes back inside the palace. He summons Jesus and he asks him, and here's his thought. I mean, I don't know exactly everything he was thinking, but I think I know. He's got a question. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, he knows the political structure, but he also knows there's something different about this guy. People seem to want to follow him. It's almost like a rhetorical question because he knows in, in physicality it's not. But at the same time, he's wondering, maybe I can find it out here. Because if I can make him king in some other way, we got a way to pull this out of the fire. That's what he's thinking. He's a politician. He's developing a narrative. That's what they call it today. Jesus said, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Now, by the way, that's a rhetorical question because Jesus already knew it was his own idea. Am I a Jew? He replies. Another rhetorical question, because of course the answer is no. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Once again, Pilate doesn't care what Jesus did. He just doesn't want to affect his life. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Uh-oh. We're, we're painting a narrative. My kingdom... Is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. Where's the anarchy? Where's all the people sticking up for me, Jesus said. Then he says it again, but now my kingdom is from another place. Now imagine your pilot standing there and cued in your mind is the Twilight Zone music. What kingdom from another place? 
But he doesn't ask him, where is this place? Is it on the earth? He doesn't ask that. You know, he says, you are a king then. Because, see, he's just got a narrative. He just wants that confirmed. You are a king. He sees his way out. A plan now is formulating. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king, which is a kind of a not answer and answer at the same time. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Uh-oh. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Now, he has just said two damning things to a politician. There is truth and there are sides. No politician wants that. We can work both sides. We can work both sides of the aisle. We, we don't need, this is our truth. That's what he was trying to do. He's trying to get out of this thing without chaos. And so then he says back to Jesus, what is truth? You know, philosophical. What is truth? Jay said it on the podcast the other day, he was right. He said, he asked the wrong question. He should have said, who is truth, right? Because Jesus already said, I am the truth. But of course, he's not looking for spiritual answers. He's looking like so many do today in our society for political answers. And they're not there. Well, after he interviews him, it didn't really help. So now he's going to be innovative with the mob. So he goes out, verse 38 through 40, and he has a little back and forth with the mob. He says, basically, I find no reason to condemn this man. I'm not seeing it. He's letting them know, I'm the one in charge here. He said, but I have found that there's a custom that I get to release someone to you because it's Passover. That's what politicians do, right? We've come up with a plan. And he's thinking that the mob is going to reply with like, oh, yeah, that's right. We'll just take Jesus back. And he offers him another Jesus. You know that? Barabbas? A lot of the manuscripts say his name was Jesus Barabbas, which I think that's deliciously ironic that he says, you know, why this? I got another Jesus here. And this Jesus here, he's bad. I mean, you know he's bad. He's got a rap sheet this long. I mean, let's crucify him. He needs to be crucified, right? Politicians, man. He's making his case. Here's the problem. When you try to appease a mob with logic, they're not listening. Because they've been told they're marching orders. No! Set Barabbas free. We crucify Jesus of Nazareth. They're sticking to the message. Ultimately, all his political plans fail. And that's when things get dark. Next week, Tommy is going to describe just how dark that was and how excruciating it was for Jesus. He was humiliated, assaulted, demeaned, and sentenced to execution. And you want to know why? Because he told the truth. That's why he was killed the way he was. They didn't know, of course, he was doing it for bigger reasons. So we had religious forces, we had political forces. And here's the more subtle one that we recognize, hopefully, 
but they didn't in the moment. There were evil forces at work. You see, Satan was behind this whole thing. He wanted to kill Jesus. He, was, he didn't know. He got duped. But I can totally see why he did it. Because if he can take down an innocent man, and at the same time, the one who's claiming he's from God, he gets to kill God and rule even more than he's already ruling. You say, well, how do you know that, Al? A couple of reasons. One is that we know he was the one to hold Judas part of the plan. That was all Satan. He had been prompting him, remember, and he had been pushing him. And then finally, he literally indwelled him. John 13, 27, as soon as he took the bread, Satan entered him. Satan himself. And we read a lot about evil spirits and all sorts of weird things, but this was the big guy. That's how much the plan meant to him to make sure that it happened. Evil forces. His fingerprints are all over it. Here's the problem, folks. If Satan is your overlord, what will happen to you is the same thing that happened to Judas. You help him with his plan, and then he chews you up and he spits you out in the worst possible way. He doesn't care about what happens to you. You realize that? Those of you, if you're under the control, anyone listen to this today of the evil one, he doesn't care about you. Judas was remorseful and all this, but it didn't make any difference. He had already sold his soul and allowed Satan in. You know where he wound up, according to Acts chapter 1? With his guts spilled in a field, hanging by a rope. That's what Satan does to people that do his work. Man, I don't want him being my boss. We also know that from the beginning... That Satan had his eye on Jesus. Remember in Luke chapter 4, Jesus went out and had the 40 days in the wilderness. And there he was. And, you know, he's having this moment to connect. And he's about to start his ministry. And so he's without food. And, you know, he's just really just like soaking in being a man. This is his transition. He's 30 years old. He's about to go in. And Satan comes to him. By the way, you know when Satan comes to you? When you're at your weakest point. You're sick, you're tired, you're hungry, you're grumpy. He waited till Jesus got the 40 days, and then he comes, he shows up. And you remember he went at him three different ways. First, when he went after that basic human desire. Because let's face it, folks, we don't eat, we don't live. Jesus hadn't eaten in 40 days. He's like, oh, you look so hungry. You're a son of God, right? That's what you're, what you're here for, the Lamb of God. Why don't you just, you got the power to just turn all these stones right into bread and we're going to have a big old feast. Just fill your stomach. Jesus said, no, it's not what we're going to do. You can't live by bread anyway, just on its own. We're going to live by the word of God. Then he took him up to the temple and he said, look at this. I mean, you talk about... You, you guys, you know, you Jews, you have built some amazing stuff. You really want to impress this crowd? And then he quotes them a verse. You just throw yourself down on here. They will do anything you say. They'll line up right behind you. He was appealing to that second part of who we are, that part where we want to be the man. And we want to really make a difference. Jesus said, no, Satan, that's not the way we're going to do this. I got a plan. 
I'm not going to put it to the test. And then that third one was what gets me. He says in Luke 4, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world from this high place. And I don't know how this was happening. Was it physically happening? Was it in their mind? I don't know. But I know he took him to this high place. All the kingdoms of the world. He said, Satan says, I will give you all their authority and their splendor. Look at them as they sparkle in the distance. I'll give all this to you. For it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. I thought that was interesting that he said that. Then I thought, yeah, they gave it to him. People make deals with Delaware every day to rule, to be in power. All this is mine. If you worship me, it will all be yours. (sighs) Jesus said, nope. I have one God that I serve, and I serve him only. Truth. It's still the thing that smashes all the strongholds. Every satanic lie, every satanic plan, the truth still smashes it, demolishes evil strongholds. I will serve God alone. John said in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot have both, folks. We cannot hold on to the world and to Jesus Christ. He said, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. That means there's one. You say, well, why is Satan so motivated? You know, because we don't know a lot about him. We know he was an angel in heaven. We know he got kicked out. We know we wind up here affecting us and our choices because he is the king of two things, and he still is. Even knowing the rest of the story, he still is. The two things that human beings fear the most, the dark and death. He is the king of the darkness. still is. See, here's the, here's the secret sauce. All of us look at this doorway to darkness in our own lives. Maybe you're already passed through there and you're in there and you're thinking, how can I get out of here? You're going to have to find the doorway to light to come out. And as long as your motivation is just this life, the only thing you have at the end of it is death. Do you see not, you see why people get so depressed when they don't have God, they don't have Jesus? If this life was it, Hey, Marxism, that's going to be my thing. Come on, man. To quote Joe Biden. Doorway to darkness. I want to leave with three things to give you some hope. Because we need hope, amen? We need to know, because this is a dark stretch in the story. And you know, when you when you go through a book like John... And we've been talking about highlighting every week, you know, we end with good news, but this is dark. I mean, these are the three days that changed the world, and it was where darkness reigned. But even knowing that the story ends well, to be here in this moment, I hope it affects you like it affected me this week. Look at this text. I mean, it made me, it made me moan for how my Lord and Savior had to die for me. And next week is even worse when we talk about the specifics of how it happened. 
Three things to give you hope, though, today, because I don't want to leave you just all depressed. Number one, Jesus is a door. That's what he said about himself. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Wherever you are today, as you're listening to this or watching this, there's a, you have an opportunity to go through the doorway of light. There's no place too far. You say, but I, um, oh man, Alan, I've just done some terrible things. I mean, you just don't know, and I'm a terrible person. Yeah, I know. I get it. Me too. I'm just telling you, you don't have to stay in darkness. You can come out into life. And Jesus is that way out. It's that simple. And it's that true. All these people I've been talking about today, they missed it in the moment. But you don't have to miss it. You can take advantage of it and come out so much better in the light. Jesus is light. So when I was a door, he is light. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Did you catch that? Once you're in him, once you're following his way, you're in light from here on out. What a, what a blessing. You don't have to be sucked into all the political things of this life. Yeah, we vote, elections, oh, the end of the world. No, come on, man. We know the light. Whoever's leading our country, we still know the light, right? Might it get a little tougher on us? Sure, absolutely. But you know what? It was tough on these guys. And look what they did. They changed the world. Because of what they did, we're here. We martyr, we martyr for the power of light. And the last thing is, is that, and I'm sneaking ahead now to two weeks. Kelly gets the good lesson. Jesus is alive. He's alive. He went into darkness, but it couldn't hold him. He went into a tomb, but death couldn't hold him. And now he reigns over our lives, and he's given us the Holy Spirit to live while we're on this earth. That's the blessing. He's alive, and those of us who believe in him and follow him, we're alive as well, bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit and affecting lives. As many of you here today, I've met some of you and some other folks have met you. You come from all over the country. Some of you listen to our podcast. Some of you watch the live stream. Man, we praise God you're here today. We're honored and humbled you'd want to come to West Monroe just to spend a little time with us. Because that's what light does. It shines into darkness. Folks, we're about to have one of the greatest opportunities this next year to be lights in darkness. Because we know there's some sinister forces lined up against our country, right? But we're the people of God. We know the doorway to light. We know the answer to every single problem. And we know the one unifying element, Jesus Christ. No race, no gender, all the things that divide us in America, we're united in Christ. What an opportunity. If you've never obeyed the gospel, if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, if you've never made that step out of that dark door, today is your day. And I want you to see your opportunity, whether you're watching somewhere in the country, whether you're in our fellowship center, or whether you're right here where we're broadcasting from. You have an opportunity to step into that light right now. 
and I urge you to do it while we stand and while we sing.